0: Alright folks, welcome to Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by a new sponsor, Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter, part of the Mile High Sports Podcast family, and I am very excited to do a mailbag episode today. I was asking for questions over the weekend, I feel like this is the right time, kind of before the draft hits, before the, the main frenzy of the draft hits, and then also get to talk about free agency here. Everybody has their... Their own recommendations and thoughts on trades and free agency targets and things like that. And I'll share my thoughts with you guys. And I will, of course, be doing so more frequently over the course of these next few weeks as well. Uh, but for now, we're, we're going to get into some of these questions. But first, I wanted to touch on some news that popped out today. Uh, the Nuggets are hiring Ryan Saunders, of the formerly of the Minnesota Timberwolves, as reported by Sham Sharania of The Athletic. Uh, this is not surprising. Michael Malone hinted at this uh, over the course of uh, he was doing it on Friday uh, at the pre-draft workout, actually. And he had been talking about a coach that potentially had some head coaching experience that he was familiar with, that he was that they were comfortable with. And so I'm not surprised that they've decided that this is probably the right call. And I speculated on a couple of different names like Frank Vogel. I was quickly rebuked, quickly told that that wasn't really it. Turns out it's Ryan Saunders, and the Nuggets are very familiar with Ryan Saunders. He's been coaching within the, within the division, uh, started in 2019, and then was coaching through the 2020-2021 season. I think probably about uh, close to halfway through that season as well. So probably overall about two years of head coaching experience in terms of actual game time. Uh, but he's been at the helm for the Minnesota Timberwolves before Chris Finch got there. So, very interesting that the Nuggets have basically been switching up their, their head coaching and 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 free agents and assistant coaches and things like that. There's a lot of ties that we'll get to soon. Uh, but it is interesting. Harrison Wynn shared that the Nuggets almost hired Saunders a year ago. That would be at the beginning of the 21-22 season. Uh, Saunders was in attendance at training camp. Last year and, and something kind of uh, the timing of it wasn't that great at that point. So they decided uh, to kind of push it off just a little bit there. But he was there in an informal capacity, was clearly getting familiar with the organization. And I'm not really surprised that given all of the coaches and all of the executives and players that the Nuggets have lost over the course of these last few years that they're they're bringing somebody new in that has some head coaching experience elsewhere. And so it's nice to see that Denver's kind of springing for another assistant here. I'm not sure what he's going to be making. I'm not sure if this is uh the front office and uh and ownership basically ponying up a whole bunch of money for an assistant. Like I don't know how in demand Ryan Saunders was per se. But it is interesting to think about that Denver now has a guy with head coaching experience. Uh, it didn't necessarily work out in Minnesota. That That's pretty clear based off of the record, but he was sort of sandbagged uh, there. there was there's there's got to be pretty difficult to win in Minnesota at that point, where obviously you had a, a pretty poor roster at that point. Andrew Wiggins was kind of on the outs. They ultimately traded for D'Angelo Russell kind of midway through Saunders' tenure. Carl Anthony Towns was kind of in a bad uh, zone where he wasn't really meeting his potential quite yet and he had like uh, Carl Anthony Towns kind of figured some stuff out post-bubble, post-pandemic stuff uh, but it's pretty clear that he he was not the level of player that Carl Anthony Towns was then and so you also had the rookie season of Anthony Edwards and Obviously, Saunders has to play him. He's the number one pick in the draft. But Edwards was not very good during the beginning of that tenure either. So not really surprised that this happened the way that it did. But it does sound like Saunders is going to be focusing on the defense. He'll be in the third chair while David Adelman remains second chair as the offensive coordinator. And as Malone said, all the coaches do coach. So it's not like it's going to just be on Ryan Saunders to make sure that the defense is good. That'll probably be a general focus for the entire organization, and it's going to come from Malone. It's going to come from the current players on the roster. It'll come from Saunders, but it'll also come from trades and additions that they make. So we're going to see. We're going to see how it goes. I, I do think that sometimes when you're a year away and then you kind of step back into a coordinator position as a head coach, sometimes that usually works out. You've seen a lot of head coaches go back to being assistants and contribute to winning teams. And I don't have any reason to believe that this wouldn't happen the same way. Although I think a lot of people were a bit confused when they saw Ryan Saunders' name. Just because when Malone had floated head coaching experience, you're thinking, okay, Frank Vogel, David Fisdale. uh, Gosh, some of these other coaches that have been around and, and doing other things. Not necessarily Saunders, but it is a person business. It's it's, If you have a good connection with Michael Malone, he's going to vouch for you. It's kind of in the Greg Popovich tree, I would say, where Michael Malone is definitely going to be in Greg Popovich's corner for the rest of Greg Popovich's coaching tenure. Like, hypothetically, if Denver fired Michael Malone, then Greg Popovich would give him a call and probably get him onto his staff. That would not surprise me in any way, shape, or form. It's kind of the same way. And I feel like Michael Malone sort of operates in the same way where he's always reaching out. He's always trying to be personable in these situations. And I have to imagine that he connected well with Ryan Saunders. Uh, They are both sons of coaches, head coaches in the NBA, as is David Adelman, by the way. So there are definitely ways that they can connect. Definitely ways that they are going to continue to improve uh and it seems to me like this is a good match uh we'll see if that actually manifests but wouldn't surprise me if Ryan Saunders is also doing this to try to get a future head coaching gig i know that David Adelman is also interested in a head coaching gig and as the nuggets continue to be more and more successful then some of those positions could open up we've seen it with Wes Unseld we saw it with Chris Finch uh there are a lot of other guys that could potentially go on to bigger and better things. And and even Jordy Fernandez, he became, I think, the lead assistant behind uh, Mike Brown on his coaching staff in Sacramento. So not really surprising that you're seeing some coaching promotions here, but this is just kind of the circle of life. A former head coach that didn't necessarily work out goes back to being first or second chair behind the head coach. And he will ultimately, if it works out in a year or two or three, try to get back into the head coaching swing. Or maybe he won't. Maybe he'll enjoy being an assistant coach in Denver more. We'll just have to see. But the ties to Minnesota, they just keep getting more interesting. If we've had this Calvin Booth, Tim Connolly kind of separation here. Tim Connolly goes to the Minnesota Timberwolves. He's not the only one from Denver that's gone there. Chris Finch under Michael Malone obviously went there. Mike Norrie, former Michael Malone assistant coach, also went there too. Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt were traded. They're former Nuggets folks. And then on the other side, Ryan Saunders, David Adelman, and Calvin Booth. All former Timberwolves folks. Kind of an interesting, unique, odd rivalry that's kind of budding, I think. Obviously, it's a divisional thing, too. But these teams are kind of mirrors of each other. And they've been mirrors of each other for a while, where you saw both had young cores back in the late 20 teens. The T-Wolves obviously traded for Jimmy Butler. That did not ultimately work out. And they sort of lost a key piece of their core in the process with Zach Levine, who went on to be an all-star somewhere else. Denver, they kept their core together and Jokic as a kind of a comparative center to Carl Anthony Towns continued to rise. Cat had a steeper increase at the beginning But hasn't necessarily increased in his production and his effectiveness that much ever since then. Kind of plateaued while Jokic has just continued to improve. Uh, you have Jamal Murray, comparative to Andrew Wiggins, who was then kind of replaced effectively by Anthony Edwards with the number one pick in the draft. And both of these teams remain young. Both of these teams are still connected at the hip, I would say. But these, this rivalry just, I think it continues to uh, have the fans, uh, the flames be fanned is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Josh Kroenke definitely did not help matters on that front by calling them a startup and a desperate organization uh, backhandedly. Uh, so we're going to see how this works. I'm I'm very curious to see how both of these teams sort of interact with each other going forward. But for now, Ryan Saunders, newest member of the Nuggets organization, congratulations to him. I am very curious to see how Denver's defense continues to work out. And so anybody that's, that's really interested in Minnesota's defense during this time, don't go look at the numbers. Minnesota's defense was not very good. Now they didn't have very good personnel and a player like Andrew Wiggins who had defensive potential definitely was not using that defensive potential in Minnesota, which, which is what he's doing in Golden State right now. He's become just a, a completely different defender within that organization playing next to Draymond Green with Ron Adams, guys like that. I'm not sure if I necessarily put that on Ryan Saunders per se, but the numbers don't lie when it comes to the Timberwolves not being a good defense under his tenure. Now they haven't been a good defense at all uh, until this year when they traded for Patrick Beverly and kind of leaned into Jared Vanderbilt and guys like that a little bit more. So we'll see. We'll see what they ultimately do. Um, And how this situation continues to work out, but I like the trio of Michael Malone, David Adelman, and Ryan Saunders. I think it's a good trio. I think we're going to see that trio work pretty well together, and there should be some healthy disagreements, some healthy and proactive coaching, and hopefully they can grow together. So let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about the mailbag and kind of get into that. But first, as I mentioned at the top, we have a new sponsor. Summer is here, and there's no better time to make your first bet with Superbook Sports. Along with its usual vast betting menu, Superbook already has a lineup for every pro football game this fall. And it's it's summer right now. Come on now. Plus, when you make your first deposit on the Superbook app or sign up at Superbook.com, they will match 100% of your money up to $500. It's never too early to start thinking about football at Superbook Sports. Place your bet and start winning today. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. All we're back. Pickaxe and roll. Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you can, it would be awesome if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Five stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. That would be fantastic. All right, mailbag time. I was interested in doing this. I know that uh, one of the the great things that I want to continue to do, even while I'm at Mile High Sports, is to continue to be interactive, continue to be uh, a part of the Nuggets community, a part of the Nuggets culture. And by doing so, uh, one of the things how I want to do it is to just continue to interact through a question and answer field. I like to do Twitter spaces. I like to do mailbags and things like that. I do mailbags on... I did them on stiffs. I'll probably do something similar on Mile High Sports. We're just going to have to see how that schedule works out. I haven't worked out all the details yet, uh, but I do want to continue doing these mailbags, and I, I fielded a lot of questions here. I want to try to get through as many of them as possible, try to answer as many of them as I, as I can, honestly. Uh, as you know, I try not to hold back. I try not to kind of shape my takes based off of what I think will happen versus what's kind of in the works. Uh, but we're just going to talk about it. First question comes from Omar. He asks, have the two most recent finals changed your opinions at all? on the NBA metagame, or do you think we're still seeing fallout from COVID seasons? I think what Omar's really referring to here is, can can we see the finals and what they're representing between Milwaukee and Phoenix last year, and then Golden State and Boston this year? Can we see that as the new evolution of the NBA? And I sort of think, yes, I definitely think that when you're talking about what these teams have done and how they continue to progress, how they continue to evolve into the best versions of themselves, it's always been about versatility. I've always thought of the playoffs as the winner of that is going to be the team where they have the fewest number of weaknesses that can be exploited consistently. And when the Nuggets were in the bubble, they actually had this happen, where you had Michael Porter Jr., you had Torrey Craig, you had Paul Millsap on the floor at the beginning of the Utah series. And the Nuggets just couldn't get any stops. On top of Jokic not necessarily being the most mobile big man in the world, uh, Michael Porter wasn't making things easier. Paul Millsap wasn't quick enough to keep to keep up in that scenario. Torrey Craig continued to play a little bit, but he was also a liability on the offensive end. So Denver actually went towards more lineups that featured MPJ at the four. They had Jeremy Grant at the three, probably the most versatile two-way player that they could find. And then the fifth player, outside of Murray and Jokic, it was kind of a rotating mix. Sometimes it was Monte Morris, sometimes it was Torrey Craig, sometimes it was uh, P.J. Dozier. And then ultimately it became Gary Harris towards the end of that series. And that was really what made the difference, is when you have guys that can't really be picked on on both sides of the floor, Denver, at this point, has too many guys that are one-way players. They've always kind of been like that, right? I think Murray has evolved as a defensive player so that you can't necessarily call him a, a one-way player anymore. But he was at, at one point in his career. Michael Porter is still a one-way player right now. Jokic has evolved into more of a two-way player. But there are aspects of his game on the defensive end that I know you can be uh, they can be exploited. What we've seen from the finals so far, the Celtics especially, Derek White, Marcus Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Grant Williams, Robert Williams, Al Horford, all of those guys can defend. They have their own individual weaknesses as a defensive group, like Derek White can sometimes be switched and posted up. Al Horford has struggled to keep up with Steph Curry, as the series has worn on. Robert Williams likes to play more drop not necessarily getting up onto Steph Curry. And it's given Steph some opportunities to go off. But by and large, as long as they don't make any massive mistakes, I still think that Boston should be favored in the series because the Warriors have had to kind of resort to some heroics from Steph Curry. They haven't been able to find the ability to consistently attack the Boston Celtics defense. And so they're going to choke the life out of the, the Warriors, I think. And that's because they don't have as many weaknesses. So I think the Milwaukee Bucks were kind of the same way, especially when they went Giannis at the five last year against the Suns. The Suns couldn't really pick on any weaknesses. The weakest player was like Pat Connaughton. And that wasn't even really bad. Like Pat was pretty good switching onto Chris Paul, Devin Booker, whoever. So I do think that that's kind of the meta. Every single player that you acquire from now on has to factor in that they can't have these massive weaknesses because that weakness is just going to be dug into ad nauseum by whoever is the opposing team. And there's at least going to be a matchup throughout the playoffs where that player just cannot play. So you have to find either you kind of deal with that and save that player for the series that matter or you don't have that player in the first place. Grover Williams asks, who is your number one on your list for the Nuggets to draft at 21? And then he subsequently asks, what do you think is an ideal trade for OG Ananobi that the Nuggets can make that will intrigue the Raptors? I'll answer the second one first. I don't think that there's a Nuggets trade that really makes sense. Matt Moore over the, at the Action Network, good friend of the program. He listed the Nuggets as a potential destination from what he's been hearing, and I'm not surprised because Denver, they want defense, and OG is a pretty good defender. I don't think he's the best defender. I think there's an, an idealized version of him that maybe once he's playing hard and maybe consistently in a 3-and-D role, that maybe he's fine. Last year, he wasn't that great of a defender from a, a consistency standpoint. But his ceiling, of course, is one of the best defenders in the NBA. So I think Denver, they could try to make a move, but what are the Raptors really going to want back that the Nuggets are going to offer? Well, they're probably going to, they would take an upgrade on the wing over OG because relying exclusively on Gary Trent Jr. and Scottie Barnes, probably not the best call. But Denver doesn't really have an upgrade on the wing to send them. The other thing that they'd want to have is a center, Denver's not trading them Jokic. So I, ju- I just don't see the pathway. Maybe if there's a third team that can send the Raptors a center, but I just don't I don't really see it. And as for your first question, who's number one on your list for the Nuggets to draft at 21? I think right now it's Jalen Williams from Santa Clara. I think he's the guy that if, if you're looking for, kind of like what I was talking about with Omar's question. If you're looking for a guy that's going to be on the, playoff, on the playoff roster, on in the playoff rotation, maybe he's not a starter, but he's definitely a guy that has the ceiling to be in the playoff rotation and a guy that cannot be played off the floor because he has too many strengths, can pass it like a point guard, uh, can defend several different positions with 6'5", length, 7'2", wingspan. That's incredible. And then he has the shooting capability. To space the floor as a competent 3 and D guy, so I have to imagine that he is at the top of my list right now. There are a couple of other candidates I think you could throw out there. Marjan Beauchamp is another one. Uh, I would take Wendell Moore 21, but I'm kind of maybe sliding him just a little bit, Uh, but I do think that right now it's Jalen Williams. Jordan asks, if the Nuggets do end up moving Barton and or Morris, the obvious choice is to get an established guy to run the two or slash backup three, but who would be like, but who would trying to move up, excuse me, would trying to move up into the late lottery work out better around 13 to 16? Well, it's a good question. It obviously everything depends. It depends on what the Nuggets want, it depends on what the Nuggets believe that they can get. Uh I would be a little bit confused if I were Denver. Because I just don't see a clear target right now, kind of in that 13 to 16 range that you're talking about. The closest I think you could get is Ochai Baji. I have him ranked 19th on my board, but there are others that have him ranked higher. Maybe the Nuggets like Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. Maybe they like Tari Eason, who's projected to go kind of that late lottery area. Uh, Maybe it's Jeremy Sohan. Though I kind of doubt it. He doesn't really fit what Denver wants because he's kind of an Aaron Gordon approximate and Denver already has Aaron Gordon. So maybe it is Johnny Davis. Maybe it's A.J. Griffin or Benedict Matherin or somebody like that. Dyson Daniels. Maybe one of those guys drops and they try to trade up. But they have to believe that that guy is going to be a starter. If that guy is not going to be a starter in their eyes, then there's no reason to trade up. I think that even if they're drafting at twenty one, they should be drafting for a guy that they believe could be a starter. Whether he will or not remains to be seen. But I do think that that is the general premise that you should be running your draft analysis around: is can this guy start for my team? Now we'll see. We'll see what they ultimately do. But if they traded up, like if they traded Monte Morris and the twenty first pick for matching salary and the thirteenth pick. And then and then selected Johnny Davis from Wisconsin. I'd be eh about it because I just don't see I don't see him being a massively impactful piece the way that some people do. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. What is next? Duder asks Opinions on Jeremy Sohan's fit. With the Nuggets, I, I guess I kind of uh, kind of expressed this already. Uh, duter says he might be his favorite prospect in the draft, and I'm not really surprised by that. duter uh, he is definitely uh, Sohan. Sohan is definitely a an NBA draft Twitter kind of guy. He, you could see the basketball IQ. You can see the shooting efficiency. Uh, maybe not as a three point guy, but more of a uh, basketball IQ, passing, athleticism defensive switchability kind of guy. There are some of these players that sort of evolve. Like Brandon Clark is kind of the, the pre-evolution of this, where maybe not necessarily as defensively impactful, maybe not necessarily as good of a passer. But a lot of people like Brandon Clark, and Brandon Clark proved to be a very helpful player for the Memphis Grizzlies, helping them get past the Minnesota Timberwolves in the first round. So there are definitely some options here. Definitely some guys that I think Denver could get, but I don't think that Sohan's fit with the Nuggets is very good. He seems like a guy that would be a good replacement for Aaron Gordon down the line, but do you trade up for that guy? Jeremy Sohan's going to probably go in the lottery, late lotto, maybe latest is probably like 16. I cannot imagine for the life of me why Denver would trade up for somebody that they believe is not going to play major minutes until Aaron Gordon's probably out. Because Jeremy Sohan's fit with Michael Porter is really good. There's a, and his fit with Nikola Jokic is pretty good. There's, there's a reason why I think it makes sense. If you're trading Aaron Gordon, then maybe that makes sense. But I just don't think, like, given that you just gave Aaron Gordon an extension, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Connor Stevenson asks, Dale and Terry seems criminally underrated right now. He feels like a great pick at number 21. Who do you like between him, Wendell Moore, and Kendall Brown as wings who could possibly slip? Now, it's interesting. I think of all those guys, I have Wendell Moore ranked the highest because I believe in his shooting, more so than a guy like Dale and Terry, more so than a guy like uh, Kendall Brown. Kendall Brown, they're actually having in for a workout on Monday. I'll presumably speak to him on monday and, and kind of hear what he has to say about himself so we'll be able to see that but wendell moore i have ranked 20th on my board dale and terry i have ranked 28 in retrospect that's probably a little bit too low but there's a lot of guys i think you could realistically say could work out he's definitely in that tier uh, and then kendall brown is also in that tier at 30 uh I like Wendell Moore the best because I believe in his shooting, but I also believe in his combination of shooting, passing, and defense. Dale and Terry still a little bit worried about the the shooting, still a little bit worried about the scoring off the dribble. At least with Wendell Moore, I could see it in college. Now, Dale and Terry could always develop into Moore, and there's possibly a little bit more of a defensive ceiling with him. He was pretty young, but also just very competent, very good on the defensive end and has a little bit of extra length that could actually, not really, not over Wendell Moore because Wendell Moore's got a seven-foot wingspan. So, either way, I do think that both of those guys would be very sound picks, even if Denver drafted them at 21. Like, if they drafted Dale and Terry, I would be like, okay, so maybe I missed something. Kind of like how I did with Bones Island last year. So, I'm definitely not infallible in this. I'm just doing my best to provide the best analysis that I can. Alfredo Lauria says, what does it tell us the fact that Will Barton has erased every single Nuggets reference from his IG and posted a photo of Tim Connolly and Mike and Monte Morris? Um, so that was a party that was kind of a send off party for Tim Connolly, I'm pretty sure. And Will Barton was there. Monte Morris was there. I think you could see Calvin Booth and Felipe Eichenberger, uh, the strength and conditioning coach, in the background of that shot. Uh, I don't know if it says anything in particular. I think a lot of players do that, where they kind of scrub their Instagram of everything team related. It's also possible that Will sees the trade requests or sees the the trade messages from the entire Nuggets fan contingent right now, and it's like I don't I don't feel like dealing with this. I'm I'm not representing the Nuggets right now because all Nuggets fans have decided to kind of turn on him. So I don't know. Like, does it say anything in particular? No. I do think that a a breakup is probably coming between the Nuggets and Will and whether that's right or wrong in your eyes I think that that's probably the way that Denver is going to be going about getting better on the defensive end. They have to find a way to get a better defender. The easiest way to match that is to trade away Will Barton. It just like these pieces are like a puzzle piece. It just fits together. Gage Bridgeford, shout out Gage, a uh, former uh, Denver Stiff's colleague, of course, and good friend. Who's the one player you have absolutely no desire to have the Nuggets draft? And then who's your dream realistic prospect? The one guy that I don't want them to draft. I don't think I have like one specific. I, I've always just kind of said, don't draft anybody 6'3 or shorter. Just because I think it's... it's superfluous. Murray's already on the roster. Monte Morris is already on the roster. Bones Highland's already on the roster. You believe that those guys, some combination of those guys is going to fill 48 minutes at shoot or at point guard for the majority of the next two, three, four years. So why are you drafting a, a point guard-sized player? Playing them next to each other continues to make you smaller, and I just can't really see it. So like Ty Ty Washington, despite the fact that he looks like a very good and helpful piece, kind of like a Tyrese Maxey from Kentucky last year, I just don't necessarily see the appeal. I think Ty Ty could be a very good player, as could uh, Kennedy Chandler from Tennessee. But neither of those guys really make a lot of sense for the Nuggets and kind of how they're currently constructed. Like with a center, I could see them drafting a center. Having that guy be the backup option, be like, okay, maybe we give it to one other guy. Uh, maybe you bring in a veteran for next year. But then the following three years of that rookie contract are definitely that player's minutes. And so you could say, okay, they're penciled into that. That's fine. It is what it is. I can't really see it with a point guard. I'm sorry. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think one more here. Oh, actually, you said, who's your dream realistic prospect? that's that's another one. I, I really do think it's it's probably Jalen Williams. He's probably the the guy that makes the most sense to me, but I could be wrong. like he he's a three year guy. He's an older player. Sometimes those guys when they break out in their junior or senior seasons, it might be more of a flash in the pan. When I watch him on film, I don't really see a flash in the pan. I see a guy that just makes a lot of sense and makes some high level reads looks like an NBA player, Uh but we'll see. We'll see whether that actually pans out. And final one here before we hit a break. Connor asks, what do you expect to see from the core four this coming season? What's the highest upside for all four and what's realistic? So core four, obviously, Jokic, Murray, Porter, Gordon. I think what Connor's trying to get at here, Jokic is going to be awesome. There's no doubt about it. I think you know what you can expect from Aaron Gordon. He was a little bit overextended this last year, but plug in Murray and Porter and Gordon goes back to a fourth or fifth option and you feel, okay, that's a pretty good fit based off of what Denver has. The real question, of course, is, is Murray back? Is Porter back? Are those guys, like, can you count on them to be just like what they were when they, or before they got injured? I don't think the answer is yes. I feel like you could probably count on 80 to 90% of what they got. It's so like Murray, for example, was kind of, he was like 21, five and four in the last year, uh, 2021 before he tore his ACL. He was shooting like 41%, 48 from the field, 90 from free throw line or something like that. So like if you told me, okay, he's probably going to average 18 to 19 points per game. Kind of go back to the, the pre bubble Jamal Murray, whoever that is. Average to above average shooting efficiency. Uh, solid stats across the board, but nothing spectacular. Kind of looking like 18, 4, and 4, 19, 4, and 5, something like that. And then he's probably shooting like 58% true shooting or something like that. That's still fine. That's still very good. And then as long as Jokic is playing at an MVP caliber level, then you know you're going to be in a pretty good position. Now, with Porter, I think it's a little bit unclear. Like, I think that Murray, you're probably going to give him some maintenance days here or there, but it's it's pretty standard that once you come back from a torn ACL, you're going to need a little bit of a ramp up, but after that, you'll be fine. And he's going to have plenty of time, 18 months since the last time that he stepped on the floor. So he'll be ready. I, I really do believe that. With Porter, I think you're going to have to do some maintenance. I think you're probably going to expect him to play 60 games, probably going to expect him to uh, take a little bit of a step back in his role offensively, and you're hoping, I think, that he he spends a little bit more effort on the defensive end, not as much on the offensive end, and then he can kind of work himself into the player that he was, uh, but take it a little bit slower. So... He was averaging what 19 and seven, 19.7 rebounds on 66% true shooting. Could he get to 17 and seven on 60% true shooting? Yeah, probably. I I do think that that's reasonable. Maybe it's more like 17 and six, uh, with Gordon kind of in place and Jokic having a, a massive rebounding bump lately. Uh, but I do think that it is possible that he's averaging like 17. Murray's averaging 18 to 19, and Jokic is still averaging like 25 to 28 points a game. If that's the case, Denver's going to be freaking fine. They're going to be okay. And you said, what's the highest upside for all four? That they're all healthy and clicking and fitting together next to whichever shooting guard is on the floor. Jokic has his 40 point games on occasion. Murray has a 40 to 45 point game in the playoffs on the way to a conference finals. And then Porter has some Clay Thompson moments in him where he just, and, and honestly, he had some of those last year against Portland in the playoffs. I do think that he could get back to that. You give him, or you, you have, you put the ball in Murray's hands. For example, teams can't sag off of him a little bit the way that they did with Monte Morris or Will Barton or Faku Composite or Austin Rivers. You got to get out there on Jamal Murray. Uh, So I do think that Porter could definitely take advantage of that. Maybe he has a 30 spot in him in a key game six or a key game seven. And the ceiling, of course, is championship. Like those four players, as long as they're healthy, ceiling is championship full stop. What's realistic? Probably a conference final, and probably even before that. Conference semifinals, probably more realistic, but the ceiling is clearly a championship. Let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to get into part two of this mailbag. Lots of questions still to come. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Pickaxe and Roll final segment here. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. I'm uh, going to continue to up the number of podcasts over the course of next week, I think. Uh, as we as we get into NBA draft week, I'll definitely do some more, do some more shows. And the week after that, of course, is going to be crazy. I'm going to probably do five or six shows that week as much as I possibly can. Uh, but I do have to cover everything on Mile High Sports too, so going to have to balance that, of course. But should be a lot of fun. I'm hoping to get a guest on to talk draft over the course of this week, and we'll just kind of play that by ear. But for now, let's go back to the mailbag, see how things are going. Harry Leland, he asks, How many of our current players will return for the active roster in Game 1? Interesting question, because Denver currently has eight players under contract for next season. They've got another two that have player options in Jeff Green and Jermichael Green. But I do think that given that there's some potential shifts that the roster could take, as well as some free agents that I think people can expect to not bring back, there is going to be some serious turnover. Let's assume that Jokic, Murray, Porter, and Gordon are locks. I wouldn't quite go as far as saying they're locks personally, because I do think that when you're talking about trying to make a splash and being willing to take chances, trading Porter kind of re- represents taking a chance, I think. I don't think, uh, Calvin Booth is trading Jamal Murray. I can't imagine that. And I honestly don't think that he's trading Aaron Gordon unless the player that they get back is a clearly superior wing, f- wing fit, like a Mikhail Bridges or somebody like that. But for now. I do think that those guys can be considered blocks. So you have four. Morris, Bones, Zeke Nagy, all of those guys are likely, I think. Barton is iffy, bordering on very unlikely. Davon Reed is likely, given what we've heard and given what we've talked about to Michael Malone, how he kind of references him. And I, I do think that Davon is likely to return not sure how that affects Austin Rivers, because I kind of assume those guys to play the same role a little bit. Maybe Davon's just slightly bigger, can deal with a couple of bigger guys, and Rivers is more of a guard. But I'd imagine he's likely to return as well, so I'm I'm penciling in both of those guys to return. Jeff and Jamichael Green, they each have player options, so kind of 50-50 on those two. But I also think that there's some trade possibilities with those guys. DeMarcus Cousins, they say they would talk about. I'm a bit skeptical that Cousins will actually be back based off of how they've discussed defensive improvement because I just don't think that Cousins can do some of the things that they're going to be talking about. And I think it's unlikely with Bryn Forbes, Marcus Howard, and Black Chancha. And Faku is almost guaranteed not to be back just because it it just didn't really work out. But there's always a chance maybe they patch things up, so I'm I'm not willing to go 0%, but I'd probably go like a 5% chance that Faku comes back. So I'm going to guess nine or ten players return, which means that seven or eight won't be back. You're saying how many of our current players will return to the active roster? You're probably going to get more turnover than people realize. I think last year they had barely any turnover, despite the fact that they uh, they drafted Bones. They had Davon Reed. Uh, they ultimately got DeMarcus Cousins and Brent Forbes and whatnot. But for the most part, that roster looked pretty similar at the beginning, but I do think that this year it's going to look a lot different, at least kind of more towards the back end. Kujel12, he asks, I'd love to hear you talk about how you would solve the Nuggets' problems, replacing Will Barton at the number two with a 3 and D defender and finding a wing defender to to supplement MPJ when you need better defensive coverage. Who would you target if you were Calvin Booth? Well, it's tough. I've done some of these podcasts before. I've, I've mentioned some of the possibilities. Lou Dort is one of the possibilities. Cantavius Caldwell Pope, Josh Hart. Uh, I've spoken about Justin Holliday in the past. He seems like a player that maybe could fit in the future, uh, given that uh, he's on Sacramento right now and they have their own things to worry about there. Uh, but I do think that like Gary Payton II is one name. Bruce Brown is another name if you're trying to get creative. Matisse Thybul is interesting. Definitely not likely. If you're going bigger, Malcolm Brogdon, DeJounte Murray, guys like that. I don't think that those are likely. I've kind of talked about Dylan Brooks in the past as like what I think is the most likely player based off of where he's at with the Memphis Grizzlies based off of where the Nuggets are at with Will Barton. Kind of seems like both of those teams could use a flip-flop. But maybe that's not true. Maybe maybe it's not. Like, I do think that Dylan Brooks would be a good fit in Denver as kind of a fourth or fifth option, taking fewer shots and focusing on the more role-player stuff. But we'll see. We'll see what they ultimately do. Um, I do think that finding a wing defender to supplement MPJ is a good idea. And then Figuring out that starting two guard is obviously the biggest thing for Denver this year. Uh, I don't know who it's going to be. I'd be lying if I told you I did. Uh, but I do think that it, Kentavious Caldwell Pope is probably the most realistic from that perspective. But Dylan Brooks is somebody that I would circle. Dark Darkcast, dark cast, excuse me. He says, rank the following players from the most realistic to least realistic additions. They listed 12 guys, so I'm going to run through them real quick. DeJounte, KCP, Justin Holiday, Gary Payton, PJ Dozier, Gary Harris, Landry Shamit, Otto Porter, OG, Derek White, Malcolm Brogdon, and Derek Jones Jr. Okay, most realistic is probably the returns of the former players. Gary Harris, PJ Dozier, I think those are probably the most realistic guys. Next is probably KCP, as I mentioned, just because he's an expiring contract for a rebuilding team with the Washington Wizards. They don't necessarily need him. Plays the same position as Bradley Beal. Not necessarily sure what they need, what they would want in that situation. Like, for example, I doubt that they would want Will Barton. I think they'd probably prefer Monte Morris. And if that's the case, how do you work that if you're Denver? Do you just go ahead and trade Monte Morris? I doubt it. So things get a little bit more confusing there. But I do think that that's probably where you're at. So right now it's um, Gary Harris, P.J. Dozier, KCP. Um, realistic, most realistic, probably Justin Holiday. if that makes sense. After him, uh, yeah, after him, let's go Gary Payton. After him, Otto Porter. After him... Derek Jones Jr. Actually, Derek Jones is honestly probably a little bit higher. Let's say he's ahead of both Gary Payton and uh, Otto Porter. Sorry, it's, it's hard to read this. Um, it's also a lot of names. Landry Shamitz after that is kind of a trade option. I, I think he's pretty low on the list. Uh, OG is pretty low on the list. Derek White's pretty low on the list. Malcolm Brogdon is pretty low on the list, although he's probably higher than, let's say, a Derek White, because I do think that Brogdon could be on the move. And then DeJounte Murray's last. He's a star, not necessarily thinking about him actually moving. Abdi, he asks, thoughts on the following trade? And this was, this was talked about, I think this was an article that he pulled from on NBC Philly, from what I understand. Will Barton for Danny Green, Matisse Dibble, and the 23rd pick in the draft. When I saw this, my first thought was, good lord, that is a very unbalanced trade in favor of the Nuggets. But it came from a Philly reporter. It came from a Philly website. So I was kind of like, okay, so what is the, what are we really getting at here? Well, they, they listed kind of in the article, okay, Will Barton is a 15-4-4 kind of guy. Shoots 36%, 37% from threes, pretty good, would fit pretty well as a piece. Danny Green also has a torn ACL, and he's a guy, like, if you trade for him, then you guarantee his contract. So it's like $10 million that he would not be able to play because he tore that ACL, I think, in April or May. So you're you'd kind of be expecting a Jamal Murray situation at that point where maybe you hope he comes back at that point, but you can't really expect it. Uh, so what it's really coming down to is Matisse Teibel, the 23rd pick in the draft, and $10 million in dead salary. And I still honestly think that it's not something that Denver would turn their nose up at. You're not really solving the starting shooting guard position, although I do think that Tybel is a pretty interesting possibility there because he does have starting experience. He, he's flawed, though, and I do think that these playoffs, kind of as we talked about in the first part of this mailbag, they've really enhanced my belief that if you have a major weakness, a debilitating weakness, then it makes you very difficult to play in the playoffs. Now, if there was a team that matisse Thybul could play for and still be on the court as a complete offensive liability, it would be the Denver Nuggets with Murray, with Porter, with Jokic. Like, there are no other teams other than maybe the Brooklyn Nets where he's like with Kyrie, James Harden, and Kevin Durant on the floor at the same time. And then they have like Jeff Green back in the day. Uh, but yeah, like Tybalt would fit in those situations. But So he would fit in Denver. He'd be a pretty interesting option. And if you're looking for wing defense, look no further than Tybalt because there are very few options that you could get for that price. I would probably do this deal if I were Denver, like personally. I doubt that Philly would do this deal. I think they have their sights set a little bit higher. But they also kind of have to think about next year, how Tybel didn't necessarily pan out, how uh, James Harden is going to need some bolstering in terms of playmaking on ball. But they also need somebody who can operate off ball, which is something that Will Barton can do. So we'll see. Like, if it was Matisse Teibel in the 23rd pick of the draft, like, I would do that if I were Denver, because I think that there are things that you can do to stay relatively cheap, relatively affordable, and still be okay. Depressed Nuggets fan asks, do you think Monte will be on the roster next year? I feel like he's one of our best trade assets, and combining his deal with Barton's makes matching salary for a big contract easier, or gives us another contract to swap for a rotational player. Now, let me just say this. He is a great trade asset. I think a lot of teams would They would definitely clamor at the idea of having 25 high caliber backup point guard minutes. 20 to 25 minutes, or you know, you're going to get one of the better, one of the best, honestly, backup point guards in the entire league. That is a luxury that most teams would hope for. It's a luxury that the Nuggets have enjoyed for a while until this year, where you see him go into the starting unit. And then Denver had to really mess with their backup point guard position for a lot of the the residual time. It is a great asset. It's a great trade asset. And Denver, with Bones, with Jamal coming back, you can kind of expect that they have some potential possibilities there and could maybe stand to lose Monte. It would suck. Monte's been around since 2017. It's been a very important piece of what the Nuggets have done. He's very foundational to what their culture is. People call him Mr. Nugget for a reason. But if Calvin Booth thinks that the Nuggets are going to get better and they have a better chance to win a title if they move Monte Morris, then they will. Like, no questions asked. Hypothetically, we talked about Malcolm Brogdon in one of the last questions. If the asking price for Indiana was Monte Morris, Will Barton, And the 21st pick in the draft for Malcolm Brogdon. I think Denver does that in a heartbeat. Because they know that you get somebody back like that, and it changes everything. It changes what you can do, realistically. So I'm not surprised that even though, and and Matt Moore also reported this, that other teams are talking about Monte and Will as being potentially available. So I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that this is a possibility that Denver could have. Raya Rajic asks, would it be smart to trade Monte? Oh, wait, no. Wait, did I ask that? Oh, no, here's a diff- this is a different question. Would it be smart to trade Monte, the only true point guard on the team? What if Murray and or Bones gets injured? A twisted ankle or a sore knee could keep a player out for a few weeks, which leaves Denver without a primary playmaker for the bench. Uh, this this is the right thing. This is the right idea. Why trade a massive strength if it opens up the potential to have a major weakness? Bones wasn't the most durable player. He's also still 175, 180 pounds, and he has the potential to sustain an injury or just maybe slams to the floor a little bit too hard, and he's out for a little bit, maybe breaks a bone or something. I don't know. Jamal Murray coming off of a torn ACL, that's a tough thing. You don't necessarily want to have him play 82 freaking games. You would like to play him, I don't know, 65, 70? Give him some good maintenance throughout the season? That obviously leaves Bones to step up and potentially be a starter at those situations, but imagine if you had Monte. Then he's starting in those situations, you have Bones, and you still feel pretty good about what the team's going to look like. I do think, though, the more that I think about it, the more that I think about the playoffs, how difficult teams, like how how clearly it was that Klay Thompson went off a lot because Monte and Barton were guarding him and because Denver couldn't really keep up on the perimeter with their system. Barton was a big part of that, but so was Monte. Monte couldn't really step up to him in the mid-range and he couldn't really step up to him at the three-point line because he had to cover so much ground to get out there. And this contest at 6-1 is a little bit different than a shooting guard that's like 6-6 contesting. So I do think that it wouldn't necessarily be smart to trade Monte, but it might be a necessary evil. They might have to take that chance. And maybe part of what they do during this process is they sign a third point guard that they trust, a DJ Augustine type, somebody that they believe could be realistically helpful in those situations. Maybe it's Faku. I've, I've thought about that. I sort of had nightmares about it because of my mentions. Uh, but I do think that there's a possibility that maybe if they trade Monte, then they decide that the best guy that they can bring back is Faku Compasso. Now, I don't think that that's what's going to happen, but I think it's a possibility. So, it's probably a chance that they have to take Rhea. That's just what I'm thinking. Two more questions here. Kenneth Booker, he asks, do you think the Nuggets should re-sign Cousins, and what perimeter defender should the Nuggets acquire through the draft, free agency, or trade? Now, look, I have spoken a lot about these perimeter defenders, so take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I don't think that the Nuggets should re-sign Cousins. I think that they have to evolve. I really do. That the best thing that they can do as they continue to get better as a team is to be more athletic at the 4 and the 5. Especially when Jokic is off the floor. It was a great thing for DeMarcus Cousins to be an approximate for what they needed from Nikola Jokic because it helped the entire rotation out. I don't think that that's going to be a major concern next year because when you have Murray and Porter back, you can stagger Murray with the second unit. Playing Bones and Murray together should be relatively fine as long as you have a traditional rim running center that can maybe catch the ball on the move and maybe catch catch lobs at the rim. As long as that player can play some decent defense, that's probably fine. They don't need to break the bank for bringing back DeMarcus Cousins, and and they wouldn't be, frankly. The maximum that they could throw out there at DeMarcus Cousins is like $3 million per year unless they dip into the taxpayer mid-level, which they should not do. They should be saving that money to solidify the wing position. So I just have to imagine that Cousins is probably not the guy. Now, if he was brought back, then I wouldn't complain. Like, you saw the success that Denver had, that their second unit and enjoyed while he was on the team. He was definitely more helpful than he was hurtful in the end. And that was great. Do I think that that's what they should be banking on for next year too? And the year after and things like that? I I don't know. Like, I, I think that they should be trying to get more athletic. I think they should be trying to get more defensive because that's just kind of where things are trending. There's going to be a matchup in the playoffs. It wasn't last year or it wasn't this year versus Golden State. Because they were throwing everything else at Jokic. But going forward, there are going to be teams that are going to be like, okay, we're not winning the Jokic minutes, but we can win the minutes with DeMarcus Cousins out there and really attack him in pick and roll. I don't think that they can stand to have that going forward. And finally, Diakota asks, Ryan, what's your big move that Denver makes this offseason? Oh. <sighs> I don't know why I keep coming back to Dylan Brooks. I don't. Like, honestly, Memphis doesn't need to make that move. They don't need to make a trade. But I kind of feel like they're going to want to make a splash. And I don't know who it's going to be. I don't know whether it's going to be Monte. I don't know whether it's going to be Will. But if I were a betting man, I think Dylan Brooks is the guy that I'd put some money on. Like, I'd put money on other guys, too. Kentavious Caldwell-Pope being one. Dylan Brooks being one. I don't think OG's going to happen. I don't think Malcolm Brogdon's going to happen. Maybe there's another player that opens up. Maybe there's another option that opens up for Denver in the future. But right now, I just don't really see what it is. Maybe it's Andrew Wiggins, by the way. Maybe the Warriors decide, hey, we loved what Andrew Wiggins gave us this year, but he's making $30 million. Uh, We would prefer to default to uh, Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody going forward. And bringing back Otto Porter and Gary Payton in that uh, in those potential options. Now maybe they can't do that, but I just don't think. Like I, I do think that Dylan Brooks is probably it's the it's the equivalent of whatever that is. It's not going to make everybody super happy. There are going to be flaws with whoever they acquire. There is no perfect perfect fifth option unless another team is willing to. Like, if, if it's Malcolm Brogdon, he would be a perfect fifth guy to add to the rotation, to add to that starting group, because he could take some pressure off of everybody involved. I don't think that that's going to happen. So I'm going to go a step lower, maybe two or three steps lower, depending on how you think of Dylan Brooks. But I think that's a very fair, reasonable option for Denver. Which is why it probably won't happen. They'll probably do something even crazier. But either way, that is going to do for this episode of pickaxe and roll brought to you now by superbook sports thank you so much everybody for tuning in appreciate all the love and support as always i will be back on wednesday probably going to talk to a draft expert on that day keep that on the docket should be very interesting as the draft comes ever closer thank you so much everybody for tuning in talk to you guys on wednesday